Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Tobin. Yes? You know how I don't like things that I have to do every day? (laughs) Such as eating, (laughs) sleeping. So dressing up, or just putting clothes on, as I call it, Mm -hmm. is a daily annoyance for me. Yeah. Since I was a child. When I was in middle school, our school decided to have a vote on whether or not we were going to have uniforms. And I secretly was like, yes. You're like, give it to me. So I took home the little info sheet, and it had a little, like, voting thing at the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. I bring it back, and I had written down a yes vote for uniforms. Uh And I pass it in with everybody else, and people saw my answer. And I guess, I don't know, everybody else didn't want uniforms, (laughs) which I didn't understand. So were they like, Kathy, what the hell? They were. And And what did you say? My mom gave me 20 bucks to vote yes, so I did. (laughs) Classic Kathy throwing your mom under the bus. I mean, it's the least you can do. Yeah. From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tube. Tobin. Kathy. Today, we have in the studio with us radio producer friend, Ben Riskin. Hi, Ben. Hello. Uh, Ben, how do we all know each other? Um, I think just through, like, gay radio circles and general homosexuality. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. We met at the meeting. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The annual meeting. Are you going this year? I don't know. I mean, I got the invite, but I'm, like, kind of busy that night. Yeah, but the miles. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) it's good. It's good. Anyway, why have you joined us today? I... Have a mystery. Ooh. Tell us more. So this mystery has everything. It has sex. It has daddies. It has denim. <laughs> and it has librarians. <gasps> oh, man. Wow. Ben, take it away. Gladly. On the wall of my apartment, I've got a two-foot-by-two-foot two wooden shadow box. In this box, there is a pair of denim cutoff shorts, Levi's to be specific. I've owned the shorts for almost six years. I consider them one of my most treasured possessions. And they're a great conversation piece when people come over to my apartment. But they're also a mystery. I know nothing about the shorts or how they came to live in a shadow box. I found them when I was visiting my hometown of Chicago in 2013. I was at a thrift store called The Brown Elephant on Halstead Street. For a long time, the brown elephant kind of anchored Boys Town, the gay neighborhood in Chicago. I was with a friend when we came across the shorts in the houseware section, and I immediately felt like they were special. They didn't belong in a thrift store next to ceramic ashtrays and vintage bookcases. So I bought the shadow box and I had it shipped back to New York, where I hung it on the wall of my apartment. Over the years, I've made up a pretty elaborate backstory for the shorts. I believe that these are gay shorts. One, they're definitely men's shorts. Two, they are very short. They have a max three to four inch inseam, cutoffs in the most classic sense, and a lot was cut off. And three, there's this iron press cuff that is very fastidious, the precision of a gay. In conclusion, these shorts have homosexual tendencies. Being that they are carefully mounted in a shadow box, I've always imagined the shorts as a memorial. 
In my mind, the memorial hung in a bar somewhere. Like whoever wore the shorts was a barback or a regular, and they wore these shorts every day, and everyone knew them because they had some iconic Chicago ass or legs. So when they died, you know, these cutoffs were mounted and displayed as a memorial to them. I also believe that these were the shorts of a gay man in the 1980s. They have that cutoff and combat boot style you don't get much after the 1980s and early 90s. And being that they are a gay man's shorts from the 1980s, I've always imagined that the owner died at a young age from AIDS. This is a loaded theory, I know. But I grew up in the 90s, and I came out when I was 13 years old. The only representations of gay men were those dying of AIDS. I was terrified that the same would happen to me. So much so that I created all these illogical rules for having sex, and I didn't even have anal sex until I was in my mid-20s. I only recently began unpacking all of these fears and feelings, but in the meantime, I think I kind of just attached them to the shorts. So for a long time, I just had this theory and I didn't worry about the truth. But I recently turned 35 and I bought my first apartment. Because it's in New York City, it's only 270 square feet, which is smaller than most of the houses on Tiny House Hunters. There were some painful decisions to make, like what to keep and what to discard. And when I was deciding to keep the shorts, it felt like if it doesn't have a history, I'm not sure it sparks joy for me. I really firmly believe that the shorts are a piece of gay history. But what the fuck do I know? I have absolutely nothing to back up my theory but some cutoffs in a box. So I decided to go on a search for the truth. first fact I needed to nail down was when these shorts lived. Because if I was wrong about the age of the shorts, then the whole theory was wrong. So I reached out to someone who literally studies Levi's for a living. My name's Tracy Panic. I'm the historian for Levi Strauss and Company. I'm so excited we were put in touch. I have <laughs> a million questions. 90% of them are, how do I become a Levi's historian? Um, and <laughs> oh. 10% of them are about these shorts. But, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Then I can handle that. <laughs> Because Tracy lives in San Francisco, where Levi's is based, she couldn't examine the shorts in person. So she asked me to take some photos and send them to her. But in order to do that, I had to take the shorts out of the shadow box. All right, so I am touching the shorts, the capital S shorts right now. Oh, and okay. this is the first time I have ever touched them. Like, they've never been out of the shadow box, and it's a little awe-inspiring for me. What can you tell me based on the picture? It was a nerve-wracking moment. It felt both forbidden and exciting to be touching something that someone had so carefully put behind glass. But from the photos, Tracy was able to tell me a few things about the shorts. Well, first of all, I can tell you that uh, what we're looking at is a pair of 501 blue jeans. And they're my favorite Levi's to talk about because they are the origins of blue jeans. Uh, it was the first... Tracy was also interested in the patch that had been really nicely sewn into the butt and that previously mentioned fastidious cuff on the bottom. So clearly this was a pair well-worn, uh, worn outdoors, uh, worn and loved and kept uh, in a way that's uh, expressing their importance in this uh, 
the person's life. Tracy also had me look for specific markings, which told her where the shorts had been manufactured. In El Paso, uh, Texas. Which Finally, from a number, 52, stamped on the back of the button, she was able to tell me when these shorts lived. My best guess uh, is that these pair come from the 1980s, and I can give you— uh, I was right, and I love being right. Some 80s queen had really, really loved these shorts, and I knew it all along. These shorts had lived a life, and most importantly, that life had been in the 80s. So I knew the date and how well-loved they were, but Tracy couldn't tell me much about who may have worn them. What do you imagine the history might be for these? Uh, there's, there's such great connections with uh, Levi's, with denim and blue jeans when it comes to not only um, free expression and your sexuality, but also about politics and being kind of um, a pant that is a bit rebellious. Uh, and what I mean by that is... Tracy wasn't ready to out the shorts. And I needed someone who was. I needed some evidence that these were part of gay history. So I turned to a different kind of historian. Yes, my actual name is Saint Suki Delacroix. I am a saint. A saint but no angel. I can tell you that. Suki is a historian who specializes in Chicago gay nightlife. He has this wildly in-depth knowledge of the gay bars in Chicago from the turn of the century all the way through the 90s. He wrote a book about it called Chicago Whispers, which is the gayest book name. Honestly, I was kind of hoping he'd just be like, oh, the shorts, of course I know about them. Let me tell you about Chris Cutoffs and his famous shorts. But Suki didn't have any names for me. He did, however, rule out one possible suspect. No, they're not mine, no. I would, I've never had the legs for that. <laughs> <laughs> Suki didn't know who the shorts belonged to, but he did have some thoughts on my search. <laughs> Are you getting it DNA test? <laughs> we haven't actually thought about that. I watched too much Law and Order. 23andMe isn't a Nancy sponsor, so we couldn't get a DNA test. But all jokes aside, Sookie did have a lead. He thought I should talk to some of the guys who were part of the original Chicago leather scene. Because they used to, I mean, now you have, well, not so much anymore, but in the last couple of decades, you, you have leather bars, but... Way back, you had leather and Levi bars. I had no idea. It could have been on the wall at one of those. Who knew? I have been to my fair share of leather bars, but I didn't realize the denim itself had a place in history. This was a fucking lead. If it was leather and Levi's, it would make sense for someone in that scene to really, really love their Levi's. So much so that when they died, they were framed as a memorial maybe even framed and put on the wall of a local bar. So with that clue, it seemed like a good time to head to Chicago to talk to some people in the know. And I enlisted former Nancy producer Matt Collette to join me in the search. It began with searching for the shorts at the O'Hare baggage claim. What are we looking for? Oh, we're looking for a, it's a box wrapped in bubble wrap in a box, and then it's going to be in a bag. There it is. That's after the break. You're listening to Nancy. Matt and I arrived in Chicago, shorts in hand, on a Thursday morning. St. Suki de la Croix had given us a list of leather bars. 
but most were closed for good, and it was a bit early to hit up the ones that had survived. So we started our search for clues at another local leather establishment. This used to be a synagogue. Oh, can you tell just from looking at it? No, I read it on the website. Oh, okay. (laughs) It is certainly not a synagogue anymore. Gary Wasden met us at the door. And I'm the executive director of the Leather Archives and Museum. Gary is tall and bald and has a big beard and broad shoulders. He describes himself as a daddy, and I would also describe him as one. You know, I spent my whole life kind of keeping my professional life and my personal life separate. And, you know, making sure that, you know, I was Gary the library director or I was Gary the leather man. And coming here, I can just be that awesome librarian, but I can also be, you know, the big leather daddy bear that's running this place. The Leather Archives and Museum is a collection of pictures and clothing and gear from the leather scene in Chicago and across the Midwest. Gary offered to give us a quick tour of the museum. We started in what would have been the main room of the temple. A medium-sized room with high ceilings, stadium seating, and some very eye-catching artwork. From floor to ceiling, the walls were covered in massive, wooden, Tom of Finland-style murals showing leather daddies with huge dicks and big asses in all sorts of compromising positions. Gary explained that the murals used to hang at a bar called the Gold Coast, which was the center of Chicago's leather scene for nearly three decades until it closed in 1987. So one of the things about this art, it was sort of there for, you know, stimulation purposes in the same way the videos today. A lot of these murals, quite frankly, are saturated with cum. <laughs> um, people come up and look and they're like, what's all over this thing? Yeah. It's like, well, let me tell you. Uh, but, black, you know, black light night in this room is right, just a totally exactly. different experience. I mean, that's, that's what it was. I mean, it was there to get people hot and, yeah. and it was effective at I mean. <laughs> its job. Remember when I mentioned that teenage me had all those illogical rules about sex? The overt sexuality on display in this room was the kind of thing that terrified me. I was so afraid that if I really embraced my sexuality and had intimate or vulnerable relationships with gay men, I would surely die of AIDS. Not only is this not true, it's not at all reflected in what we saw in the museum. The Last Supper in a Gay Leather Bar with Judas giving Christ the finger. <laughs> Great. By Leatherman Steve Brown. This is incredible. Gary walked us through all these positive, life-affirming displays about different leather scenes in the Midwest. Leather families and groups of friends, vests covered in patches and pins, and guys in denim outfits with chaps and cowboy hats. A community of people, friends, lovers, and strangers tied together by sexuality and intimacy. They had helped each other live before, through, and after an epidemic. It was a life that the owner of the shorts could have lived. One thing Gary talked about was the ceremonial elements of the leather scene. Like passing down an heirloom in a birth family, there's a tradition of gifting leather gear to others in your chosen family. This kind of tradition helped reinforce the bonds within leather families and the larger leather community. God damn, you put that leather on and you've own the place. I mean, it's that power. You sort of command a kind of respect from people and people look at you and you know they're making associations and there's, you know, there's sex, there's power, there's energy, there's all this stuff that goes with it. Gary was talking about leather gear, but it made me think of the shorts. Maybe they were specifically chosen for the owner, a gift from someone that mattered. But still, who had put them in the shadow box? Gary agreed with my theory that the shorts could have hung in a leather bar as a memorial, and he wanted to help us find the bar they might have hung in. Most of the leather in Levi's bars are closed now, 
But the museum's archive is filled with photos of them. I'm so excited to like dive into shorts theories. <laughs> Down in the basement, Gary introduced us to Mel, one of the museum's archivists, who was already busy searching for clues about the shorts. Sitting on her desk was a slim white box of four by six photos with worn edges. I have three boxes of these. Um, they're Rodeo Writers albums. Rodeo Writers was a Leather Levi club. And they photographed every event in every bar <laughs> from the late 70s to the 90s. So I went through and I looked at all the walls and all the bars I could find. <laughs> um, it's awesome because we're looking at this picture and, and um, to describe the picture, it's like, it's, you know, uh, four guys wearing kind of denim vests with pins and, um, you know, uh, uh, caps. And But behind them on the wall, it's like cowboy hats and ephemera. And, like, it's exactly the type of wall I'm ima- I've am i always imagined these shorts hanging on. Like, And it feels really exciting to see a wall where I'm like, no, it could be on that wall. Yeah. That is, oh, that is, like, really fulfilling to, to see. As exciting as it was to flip through the photos, we didn't find the shorts in any of them. Still, Gary was confident the shorts were important and that I'd track down the story. And then you'll have to figure out, is the real history or the created history the more interesting story? And which one will you tell going forward? So after a quick pit stop in the cum-stained mural room, we left the archive without any definitive proof. I was about ready for a nap. But Matt gave me hope that we might find someone who had been part of the Leather and Levi's world and knew something about the shorts. So I picked up the shadow box and we hit the leather bars in the neighborhood. Uh, we were familiar with the leather archives and Gary suggested we try to, I, I don't know how to help you. I, okay. I've got customers going yeah. right now and stuff, so. No, I understand. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, I, I had, wouldn't even have a clue. Do you ever see anything like this, like uh, around the city? I'm not sure how long you've been in Chicago, or or all life. Okay. I mean, have you ever like been in a bar or like seen something like this at a or any? I mean, hanging in the bar yeah, now. Like I wonder maybe if he went to like Little Jim's or something like that. You little what, Jim's? You know where Little Jim's is? No, where is it? It's on Halstead and Cornelia. Okay. And Halstead, just down the street from where I had bought the shorts. Little Jim's is one of those bars that seems like it has never changed. The average age of patrons was around 70, and they were just lined up along the bar passing time. We felt very out of place, even without the radio equipment. But as soon as we asked about the shorts, this one guy immediately perked up. My first partner, before he died, we were still living in Cleveland. We had a pair of jeans hanging on the wall. We belonged to the Leather Stallions, which was a leather club in Cleveland. And we hung all of our run pins, you know what a run is, okay, on these jeans that hung on the wall. So it was a reminder of, oh yeah, we went to this run, we were at that run. You know, so it could be a reminder of a loved one that passed, or just their own. They wanted something, oh yeah, I wore those in the 70s. So maybe the shorts weren't a memorial at all. Maybe they were just someone's way of remembering a fun time in their life. I could almost see that, but not for these shorts. I just didn't want to believe it. At a bar called Touche, the owner had a different, more amenable theory. It could simply be that somebody had a partner that he lost, and it was maybe their favorite piece of article of clothing. 
And it was kind of a, a remembrance to them. Since there's no name to it or anything like that, I think it's very personal. Yeah. Not so much that it was something for about somebody else as much as it was for them. Yeah, like there's no plaque. Like if this was at a bar or something, you get a plaque, you get well, that's like... Just it. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if it was a significance that somebody's that you were trying to, to recognize who they were as somebody or special or whatever for the world to know. I could see this more as like, this belonged to somebody that was special to me and it's my way of remembering them. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really cool. A plaque. I had never thought about a plaque. But of course, if it were a public memorial of some sort, it seems likely that there would have been a plaque. Something letting the public know what the box was all about. Without one, it would make more sense for the shorts to be a private memorial. So I was left with three possible theories. My original idea, that the shorts were some kind of public monument to a premature death like the AIDS quilt. A second theory, that they were an untethered reminder of fun times. And finally, that they were a private memorial, a deeply intimate remembrance of another person's life. I always thought the shorts were a public tribute because the box was so big and garish. And you just don't walk into a lot of homes featuring a pair of shorts in a shadow box. But the evidence was starting to mount up in favor of these being a more private memorial. We'd been to the remaining Leather and Levi's bars. No shorts. We'd looked through pictures of closed Leather and Levi's bars. No shorts. We even talked to a local bar historian with his own archive of photos, and he'd never seen the shorts. On top of that, there was no plaque or anything on the shadow box identifying the shorts or their owner. And I found the shorts at the Brown Elephant, a thrift store in Boys Town where a lot of gay people's estates end up when they die. There was one more person I wanted to speak with, Ron Eamon. Originally, I was hoping to hear more about the Chicago leather scene. Ron's partner Chuck had owned the Gold Coast, that bar that was the birthplace of Chicago's leather and Levi's scene. But Ron was also in a unique place to weigh in on the private memorial theory. I met Ron at his apartment. He moved in after Chuck died. The apartment was full of artifacts calling back to specific moments in their life together. Everything in the room and throughout the whole apartment is stuff that... uh, the family collected from our travels over the years. I think the the big dragon mirror is uh, something that Chuck had when I met him. And I think the, uh, the steer horns um, he had. Most everything else we collected from travels or, I mean, there's a story behind everything. Talking to Ron, I started to think about all the things he had collected over the course of his and Chuck's relationship. What would happen to them when he wasn't there to tell their story? Would they be treated like heirlooms and cared for as sacred reminders of gay history? Or would they be shipped off to a thrift store and abandoned in the houseware section? To that end, what would happen to the shorts if I didn't keep them? There aren't a lot of institutional keepers of gay history. So many of our artifacts are only preserved if we do the preserving. And the shorts? Well, I firmly believe that they are an artifact of gay history. So I feel responsible for carrying that history forward. They're an heirloom, gifted to me anonymously by my chosen family. I mean, it's possible that somebody said, hey, we're decorating a bar, so let's get some iconic things and frame them and throw them up on the walls. But somehow this doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like 
this particular piece had great meaning to the person who created this. And it was probably invested with a lot. And, and you may be, that's what you feel, you know, and you're just taking it on your own journey because of that. But if, you, if it didn't have a lot of meaning, it certainly does now. I left Chicago without learning who owned the shorts, which is not to say that I'm giving up the search. Before I head back to New York, a voicemail arrives from a well-known custom framing shop around the corner from Ron's house. This is uh, Todd Max. Um, I'll tell you what I know. That frame job um, is definitely a one of a kind. He says there's no frame like this on the market, so somebody must have made it special. So that's one thing. The other thing is it's been years, and I do remember a pair of shorts coming through. But unfortunately, that's where it ends. He doesn't have anything else to tell me. But feel free to call me. So the search continues. Maybe one day I'll find out who these shorts belong to. But for now, they're safe. They're hanging on the wall of my apartment, surrounded by pictures of my family, art, and gay ephemera. Like Gary said, when people ask about them, I have to choose between the real and the created history. But after the search, the two have kind of blended together. And I couldn't be happier about that. That was producer Ben Riskin, who's based in New York City. And Matt Collette helped produce this episode. And that is our show. It is credits time. Our producer, Alice Wilder. Production fellow, Temi Fagbenle. Sound designers, Jeremy Bloom and Anya Gzhezik. Editor, Jenny Lawton and Stephanie Joyce. Executive producer, Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Tu. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Studios.